Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. There's been various pieces around that to the point where we get to now with the vow. What you see is me slowly forgiving Lauren because I came to understand what had been done to her and that ultimately freed any anger that I held towards her because mm. I could see that she didn't have a chance. She came in when she was 18. I came in when I was 27. I was a little more formed, I think, mm-hmm, as a person. Mm-hmm. So there were things that I just distanced myself from that I just refused to do. I didn't know that I was doing that, but I just mm-hmm. didn't. Where she was giving everything that she could to this man who she thought was essentially God. Sometimes the best of ourselves, our hopes and our belief in others and ourselves can get us to the worst places. In our last conversation with Sarah Edmondson, we learned how she became a part of Nexium through programs such as executive success programs because she believed in their message of self-growth and potential. Sarah believed in her friendships within this organization, in their mentorship, and the possibility of what she was teaching and learning. In this episode, we are going to hear about what happened when the abuses persisted and Sarah's relationships within the organization and the system itself fell apart. Sarah had been recruited to a subgroup of women within the organization called DOS by her close friend and mentor, Lauren Saltzman. This once valued friendship was now characterized by coercion, control, and was taking Sarah to a traumatic, destructive place. However, in this episode, we will also hear Sarah's process of healing. And whether it is healing from being in a toxic cult or toxic relationship, the top notes are similar. Let's hear about Sarah's experience of the fall of Nexium and her process of loss, fear, grief, and healing. What did that look like, this well, master slave being mentored by her, her <laughs> there, by her daily? There's what it started as and then what it grew to become. And it was very short because I didn't stay there long. Mm-hmm. But before I get into that, let me just tell you the other things I committed to. So I committed to the obedience. I committed to the master slave. And that's when she told me that I'd be getting this initiation ceremony mm-hmm. and that I'd getting a really pretty tattoo, this really gorgeous design. It was really special. And she testified that she told me that it was a brand. I remember her saying a tattoo because that was my sticking point because I'm Jewish. I don't have any yeah, tattoos yeah, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And she would EM me on that, which she did later. But those were the commitments. So then after I'd heard it all, I had to give a final piece of collateral 
to have me fully collateralized to seal the deal. That's when I gave a nude photo. Okay. Mm, right. All right. The nude photo became the second, the second piece, piece of collateral. Okay. The term later became fully collateralized. There's collateral to hear about it and collateral to say mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. So I say yes. The initial master-slave relationship is similar to everything we've been doing up until now as it has built over the past 12 years. Consider this. From day one, I've checked in with my coach every day. Okay. Persistency done. At some points, I was doing five persistencies. That persistency was a term of like five minutes of Spanish or like 10 minutes of doing my taxes or half an hour workout. People were committing to daily commitments for themselves, the things they were doing for themselves, flossing your teeth, doing ab crunches. And the coach was an accountability Accountability, okay. Yeah. One thing that's so insidious about Nexium is that they were basically repurposing rather fundamental coaching and therapy concepts. For example, slowly build a new habit by doing it a few minutes a day, but packaging it under new terminology and harnessing it into a larger system of day-to-day control. Cult and toxic indoctrination are a long game. Small changes that happen so gradually that they feel imperceptible and then fully overtake you. So I've already been doing that. I've already been given collateral. I've already been doing all these things. So all these things were so normalized, which makes me think Keith had planned. He loves the long game. Mm -hmm. And this is even a class he Mm -hmm. taught us about sociopaths and how... Like, you know, a bad person might be jealous of their neighbor and key their car, but a sociopath will wait for months and poison the neighbor's dog over time and just enjoy watching their neighbor suffer about their dying dog. Hmm. He taught us that. I totally believe he'd long game plan this out. It's like, first I'm going to introduce this concept and this, then I'm going to introduce this concept. By the time they get there, they won't even know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. In addition to the women that he had in their front line, they were also malnourished. They weren't eating properly. They weren't sleeping properly. Mm-hmm. Their phones were on at all hours to be available to him. And they were already his slaves. Right. So the kind of obedience that these women were showing to him mm-hmm. was already sort of in place. And it's the metaphor of the of an emaciated woman isn't lost on me, right? Because yeah. it's something that almost becomes girl-like about yes. her. You know, breasts become smaller. Mm-hmm. It's just they shrink. Mm-hmm. And that's what he wanted, the small woman he could dominate, then that's not unusual for folks who have that kind of megalomania behind Mm -hmm. them. So now you're still working with Lauren. He is, in theory... I I don't know anything about it. In fact, one of the main things that I was, when I was pitched this program is that it was women only. It was Mm -hmm. a women's empowerment group. No men were involved. Nothing to do with next time. I asked her straight up, does Keith know about this? And she straight up lied to me and said no. Mm. This was part of the whole betrayal, you know, what I had to Mm -hmm. deal with later. But so many questions she would answer and the rest she would say, this is part of your commitment. Because I'll keep in mind my whole 12 years, I'm working on my control issues. Mm -hmm. This is the ultimate surrender for me to not totally know everything that's going on and to surrender to the process and to give my vow of obedience to her. And she's going to mentor me through this and I have to trust the process. So it's basically a formalized way of getting you to do things without consent. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the mental gymnastics that the loyalists Mm -hmm. are saying now is they didn't have to tell people that it was Keith's initials because they were consenting to not consent. Mm Mm-hmm. They were consenting to not consent. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They were consenting to not know what was going on. So that's how they're that's how right. they justified it in their mind that it's okay to lie to their friends that they're gonna put Keith's initials on mm-hmm. women's bodies without mm-hmm. them knowing. Sarah has said a few times that one of the things that the folks in Nexium were trying to do was to push her to address her control issues. Well, that's a bit of projection now, isn't it? While Sarah was having this happen in a culty organizational structure, this happens in narcissistic families and relationships all the time. Gaslighting a person who is simply just trying to set healthy boundaries or maintain their individuation is often labeled as controlling behavior as a means for the narcissistic person or the system itself to control the person. This kind of projective shape-shifting and reality alteration is a hallmark of any toxic, antagonistic, and coercive person or system. What else was... Lauren asking from you in mm. this relationship? It started as, as just checking in, and she, she gave me a couple of assignments. Mm-hmm. One assignment stuck out as being, like, actually helpful, mm-hmm. which was basically she was helping me with some something that was going on with Nippy and I mm-hmm. and asked me to, like, not mm-hmm. ask him for anything, just to, like, she was trying to teach me my own self mm. that I could handle everything myself because Nippy was feeling like I was nagging him or whatever. Like, it was to help us, and that it that was helpful. 
first big red flag within DOS, other than the things I just mentioned, is then she said, oh, I need to send more collateral and that I'd be sending monthly collateral. Now, keep in mind, this is a lifetime vow of obedience. So, like, I need to send collateral every month. To which This is when I was like, okay, I have to figure out how to get out of this. Mm. And I thought I was going to try to get out of DOS. I was thinking I was trying to get out of Nexium. I was just like, mm-hmm. this is crazy. It's not what I signed up for. I fantasized about writing a letter to Nancy anonymously to try to blow it out that way. And then she asked me, she suggested, I was like, what else collateral can I give you? And she suggested the deed to my condo, my home in Vancouver. What the? I know. And this is, at this point is when I was, I was starting to actively be aware that I was being obedient, but I was starting to lie. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I'll look into that. Let me talk. I don't know how to get that to you in America. I guess I talked to a notary. I talked to a lawyer. Like, what do I do? How do I, mm-hmm. how do I do that? Mm-hmm. I can just give you the paperwork, you know? Part of that commitment was the check-ins and I knew that I had other DOS sisters that I hadn't met yet mm-hmm. until we were branded. We'll get to that in a second. And we had to check in at a certain time and I had to respond at a certain time. And I, I couldn't keep my phone off at night. That was another big problem. I was already sleep deprived with my little one who wasn't sleeping through the night. And now I had to keep my phone on. And Nippy was like, why are you turning the phone off? And we were fighting about that. I'm like, I'm doing this exercise with the, with the greens. He thought it was a green sash thing. Like he thought it was... People who are yeah. quite high up. Higher, but what, yeah. what I, so your phone was on. I read this. So yeah. if you could explain, because it's mm-hmm. really, to me, this is actually horrifying, what mm-hmm. was expected of you. Mm-hmm. So your phone had to be on all the time mm-hmm. and? And you to respond within a minute. That we, They'd send a question mark and I had to respond ready. So it was readiness drills. Again, this had been happening for three or four years, readiness oh, wow. drills already. Yeah, SOP. That was part of SOP and Janess, is that we were in teams. I see. Yeah. So all of this was, again, so normalized. It was normalized. Yeah. So you didn't, so even back in these other sub subgroups, yeah. SOPs, Janesses, whatever, mm-hmm. that there was this kind of like question mark ready. Yeah. So it was just showing that. It, it was. It was again. It was almost like trying to stop people from being defectors. Yes. And in and keeping this top of mind, creating yeah. a hypervigilance. It, it, like I said, it's, it's so reminiscent to me of the hypervigilance we see in people who are from toxic family systems. Mm-hmm. Here, it was so codified. Yeah. We're gonna send you this question mark ready. So mm-hmm. it's like a thing. Mm-hmm. But in a in a toxic family system, it's how do I not upset the parent and how do I, mm-hmm. how do I, how do I? And you'll see kids who grow up like this are wide-eyed and always on the edge of their seat wondering how do I keep the parents from fighting? How do I not get into trouble? How mm-hmm. do we make sure the parent is soothed? So they were creating that context. Right. Yeah. All under the pretext of like when I was in it, I didn't like it, but I made myself like it. To the point where I'd be like, this is creating team. Like if one of our team members wasn't, we couldn't find them, we'd like call their spouse or their work and be like, wow. okay, now everyone's accounted for. And we thought we were learning how to mm-hmm. be, you know, how accountable and have each other's back. And we, you know, there were times when this system of readiness before even DOS, where we were able to do things in the world because of our network, like someone's parents went missing in Germany and we were able to contact someone and like use the network to to do things that seemed heroic because mm-hmm. of our little tree of Mm -hmm. (laughs) readiness. Right. And so I was proud of it. Wow. Just like, you know, later before I knew I was, it was a case initials, I was proud of the brand when I first got it. My session with Sarah will continue after this break. I'll tell you, when I read that part of your book about someone sending you a question mark and you had to respond within 60 seconds, Mm -hmm. and if you didn't respond within 60 seconds, you were either being suppressive or entitled or we're going to publish naked pictures of you in the New York Times. I mean, like, it was heaven knows what they were going to do. So I felt very tense. Mm-hmm. when I read that part of the book. It was very stressful. <laughs> and I'm thinking of you with a new baby, and you're saying, here I am trying to balance engaging with mm-hmm. my family, running my center, raising my child, being in a marriage, and you would have to constantly break out of those things yeah. to respond. Yes. felt so abusive. I still, to this day, have trouble putting, like, for example, in that context, the only time I could not not be available is if I was going to be in the swimming pool, like where you can't bring your phone, or in an airplane without service. So that was the only time. And you had to say, I'm going dark. I'm going to be on a plane for five hours, and I'll be landing at this time, then I'll be not dark. If I went, But I went into my elevator, I lose service. So I would always be like, dark in the elevator. Lauren wanted me to not be dark while driving. 
She wanted me, and I, and I, that's, that was a boundary for me. I'm like, that's illegal. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but they really pushed hard on that one, for example, like dangerous. And that right there, you know, we talk about this in malignant narcissistic mm-hmm. relationships or abusive narcissistic relationships that are more severe. We see people are in a relationship who's very controlling. Mm-hmm. Where are you? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Who are you with? Why aren't you responding? Why aren't you answering my calls? Maybe the person might be at work. Right. The person might be in the bathroom. The person might have just left their phone in a different room. And it can really escalate to like 100 texts, 120 texts. This reminds me of that. Mm-hmm. A, a sort of a toxic partner saying yes. to the partner saying, I bought you a phone, you will respond whenever I tell you. Mm-hmm. It had that flair, and it's so interesting that they were able to morph it into an accountability community-building yes. exercise. It shows us the power of manipulation. Yes, and another example with the Nexium of like the good we thought it was and then what it actually was. Right, And right. you just said exactly mm-hmm. what it was. And even to this day, like even coming to this interview, I have to tell my husband and like my my producing partner, I'm going to be dark for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. I still feel the need mm-hmm. to let people know mm-hmm. I'm not going to be available. Yeah. yeah. It's deeply rooted in. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's very much rooted in. And anyone who's been in a relationship like that mm-hmm. will find it nerve wracking. And I've worked with clients in therapy where that's not normal. And mm-hmm. 20 years ago, we didn't have texts and we weren't mm-hmm. calling people all the time saying, I'm going to do this, click. Oh, and mm-hmm. now I'm not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, these technologies have actually allowed controlling people to become so malevolent and so menacing. This system of having to be available 24 hours a day to face penalties if she did not respond to a text within 60 seconds, of having her sleep disrupted and her movements day and night needing to be accounted for, all with the specter of fear hanging over her that her collateral would be released, this is coercive control. Evan Stark captures it well when he says that coercive control results in confusion, contradiction, and fear. This is what we see in abusive relationships with malignant, narcissistic, or psychopathic partners. And this is what DOS has set up here. It's coercive control, and it is a dangerous and destructive pattern. What was happening in DOS again? Anyone, if they only read that without a context, would say, what the heck? But now that we understand this has been what has been happening in Nexium for years, you're going along. Just so I have sort of an understanding holistically mm-hmm. of what's happening, was it before DOS or after, now you're already in DOS, that you started meeting with other members of Nexium? an ESP saying something doesn't seem quite right here. Did that revelation happen at what point? Because I'm trying to understand like where you were starting to hear dissenting voices. So it's really, if you look at my last six months, January to June, Mm -hmm. January was when Lauren brought me into DOS. Mm-hmm. And that was also the month that Bonnie left. Okay, so yeah. Bonnie, who's Mark's wife, Mark's wife yes. left in so January. She left. I tie into that in terms of this whole thing is that she left and she writes this lovely letter, you know, thank you for everything. I'm going to go back to LA and pursue acting. Inside, I'm going, fabulous. I'm so happy for Bonnie. Mm-hmm. I want people to go pursue their goals sure. in my inner real mm-hmm. self, not my... Proctor Edmondson self Mm -hmm. is now, I've been sent to go find out why Bonnie hasn't signed the exit paperwork, which is to say, it's basically a gag order. Like, I'm leaving on good terms and I'm never going to sue the company and I'll never tell anyone what happened in Axiom. Okay, so it's an NDA and you're giving up your constitutional rights, basically. And I've been sent because I'm her, like, upline, even though Mark's Mm -hmm. her husband, I'm her upline, like, superior in the ranking system. Mm -hmm. So that's my job. And she doesn't get back to me and I think that's weird. And Lauren's, like, in my ear saying terrible things about Bonnie. Mm-hmm, terrible. Why is she going to LA? She's just being like indulgent, pursuing her good, like just awful things. And, it, and inside I'm like, that's, like, I want her to do those things. Mm-hmm. One sign of a toxic organization is pervasive triangulation and defaming any so-called defectors. Bonnie, and this becomes more clear in the vow, Bonnie was what we often call a truth teller in a narcissistic system. And she left. When a toxic family, workplace, and obviously cult, senses there is dissent, they go into full triangulation mode, talking badly about anyone who leaves, devaluing them. This was a dissonant experience for Sarah, who actually was committed to the larger goal of people becoming their best selves. 
But she was slowly finding out that despite what Nexium preached, they weren't about growth. They were about diminishment. But if you are in a system of any kind, big or small, where the tendency is lots of fractious gossip or cruel criticism of people who left, that is a sign of a toxic organization. So that's happening. I get hooked into DOS. I don't get branded till March. Okay. So I have about, I guess, six weeks of just texting and being mentored by Lauren. The initiation ceremony happens in March. All those details are in the vow and in the book, and we can, mm. you know, whatever. So I get, so the branding happens. The branding itself doesn't wake me up. In fact, it empowers me to be that I have this secret with these other women, and mm. I and I push through the hard thing. The details of that again, like, are just too triggering sometimes mm-hmm. to to go into. But the point of it is that I didn't wake up until Mark in end of May. Mm-hmm. is leaving. And at this time also my lease is up in mm-hmm. Vancouver and I've been looking at new spaces that's now $20,000 a month. Wow. The leases are expensive. I need to find a new space. Mark's my business partner and I'm like trying to get Mark to to come up and look at the space with me so we can sign a new lease. And he's like being weird. He's being weird until he eventually signs uh, sends a letter just like Bonnie did saying he's leaving and I'm like what <laughs> you know what is mm-hmm. going on? So he doesn't tell me why he's leaving. Oh until I sign an NDA with him. Oh, okay. All right. There's lots of details of sure. this last few months, but the, the key part of it that I think is important is that we finally have an honest conversation. And he tells me one of the reasons why he's leaving is because there's this secret women's group that he's become aware of in Albany. And part of the group is that women have been tasked to have sex with Keith, which I didn't know about. You didn't know about I didn't know about part. sex. And mm-hmm. he didn't know about the branding. I told him what I knew, and he told me what he knew, and he thinks that Keith's a sociopath. And that's... That's where everything makes sense. Everything that never made sense throughout all the years, like Keith being surrounded by women, why we were never able to grow past a certain point, why certain projects got thwarted, why I wasn't getting paid. Like all Mm -hmm. these things were like, oh, he's a con man. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mm -hmm. he's a sociopathic con man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. And and my my world fell apart, but it also everything made sense. You know what I mean? Like it was Mm -hmm. it was both with the upside down world flipped. Felt like the rug got pulled out from underneath yep. me. And shortly, actually, I don't even remember the timeline. I have to read my own book. But I showed one of the women that I had brought in as one of my slaves, who mm-hmm. I basically just coached and never mm-hmm. let get branded. But I showed her my brand when I woke up. There is a moment in every relationship with an antagonistic person, whether that is a narcissist, sociopath, psychopath, or just a mix of antagonism. There is a moment for most people when the pieces fall into place. Maybe it is a conversation with a friend, a therapist, reading a book, watching a video, and then you finally get it. What Sarah shares here is the experience of many. It isn't this beautiful moment of clarity and the angels sing, quite the contrary. Yes, there is an almost surreal moment of clarity, and then, as she put it, the upside-down world, everything you know does flip, and things you had pinned hopes and beliefs on start crumbling. For this reason, many survivors within these relationships sometimes don't want to know. It is too painful and destabilizing. But once you see it, it's not something you can unsee. And she saw Keith's initials when she looked at it. She's the one who was like, oh my God, there's a K and an R which I hadn't seen because it's on its side. Sure. So then it went from betrayal to anger. to and, and then, you know, so many things happened after that where Mark and I, I had Mark tell Nippy because I was still afraid of my collateral being released. And together we hatched a plan to, first it was just to escape, and then mm-hmm. it was escape and eventually to dismantle. But mm-hmm. we didn't know that at first. It was like it happened in stages. It is a remarkable story because... We think of you escaping, you know, and then bringing it down. It really was an escape. Mm-hmm. And you really were in harm's way. Yeah. That wasn't an illusion. Mm-hmm. And I've said this to Mark, I'll say to you, mm-hmm. I've never, thank God, met Keith Ranieri. Based on all the behavior and everything we've seen, he's a psychopath. Mm-hmm. You know, sociopaths tend to be a bit more impulsive and reactive. Mm-hmm. They're messier. Mm-hmm. They're less planny. This is the thing. He didn't know what the hell he was talking about. He didn't even know what a sociopath was. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the psychopath is a little better able to play a long game because they're more mm. regulated because okay. they don't get as anxious. It was a pathetic, vulnerable element to 
Keith, that was the only piece that might pull for sociopath, but it could actually have been like a, a little bit of top note of a vulnerable narcissism, but the psychopathy around the absolute lack mm-hmm. of remorse. Mm-hmm. That to me was the ringer. A narcissistic person actually will feel remorse. They'll feel ashamed, they'll mm-hmm. shift blame, but you can see the guilt. It's written all right. over their face because they're afraid they're going to lose status and supply. Mm-hmm. But for a psychopathic person, it's just, they, they really, they just, they hold to that delusion. It's really delusional. Right. So then we get to see what happens. And right. the vow has been memorialized everywhere, what you went through. And I, I don't think people quite understand what you went through because now we see it's done. He's in for 120 years. He'll die in prison. But for years, you had to live with the likelihood and decent likelihood that he would have faced nothing And ultimately, were it not for the child pornography and the child endangerment charges, I'm going to be honest with you, Mm -hmm. I think he'd be walking around amongst us right now. Yeah. I really do. I do too. So after experiencing this betrayal, and frankly, I think the branding was a physical harm because it was not consensual. Mm -hmm. All these things have piled up and you're still a mom and a Mm -hmm. wife and, and all these things are happening simultaneously and you're still having to live in this constant fear that something bad may happen to you because there's a decent probability that he will not go to prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a very, very stressful time. I can't imagine. Yeah. I cannot I still, imagine. I still look over my shoulder. I still don't post on Instagram until a day mm-hmm. after I'm out of a location. It's mm-hmm. not even so much because of him, because of his flying monkeys and mm-hmm. what they're willing to do. My session with Sarah will continue after this break. So now the vow part two is out, Mm -hmm. and I've read your book, and this is the part of the story that I think that not everyone has really gotten to hear and reflect on, because I think, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, everybody got so caught up in the salacious elements Mm -hmm. of the story. That's always been, I think, what has damned this story. Oh, blah, 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 sex cult. I'm like, now there's something else happening here. That, to me, is almost like a little bit of a red herring, Mm -hmm. that in the sense of, yes, that was a problematic piece of it, but you had this what was it, 17,000 people or some vast number of people who have participated in these ESP programs Mm -hmm. really came in to learn something, got in, got out. Mm -hmm. And so when that many people are doing something, it it legitimizes Mm -hmm. it, basically. And so now you have, let me -hmm. me give you sort of a first-person reaction because I'd like to hear. After I saw The Vow Part 1, I was horrified, obviously, by Keith, but not surprised. Those personalities do what they do. I was angry, angry, deeply angry about the Allison Max and the Laurens and the Nancys, mm. especially Nancy. You know, she was given a position of trust and she betrayed that. I really resented it as a therapist mm-hmm. because as it is, I think therapy still, as although it's getting more normalized, it has this bad name. And then you see this person and like you said, cheesy videos and taking advantage of this and giggling like a schoolgirl with Keith. And I was disgusted and horrified. And mm. with that mindset, I did things like read your book mm-hmm. and go into The Vow Season 2. And in The Vow Season 2, it took us on a psychological ride. Mm-hmm. I, I I cannot tip my hat to these filmmakers more. I don't think something has taken me on as big a psychological ride as that did. Because after episode one... I was beyond enraged. Like I actually, I was I was pacing my house like an, <laughs> like an angry animal. And then by the time it came to an, a close and and the vow part two ended, the complicated feelings I had for Nancy and Laura. I mean, they they overwhelmed me. How complicated they were. I re, and in fact, I was watched that last episode. Then I went back and read your book, and I got angry at Lauren. But I'm like, wait, that's me as an outsider who does not know these people from Adam and just got immersed in the story. You lived it. How did you sort through the wreckage of betrayal by a friend, betrayal by someone you valued as a teacher in Nancy, betrayal and ongoing, if you will, betrayal by people who remain loyal to somebody who harmed so many, how are you walking through this wreckage and healing? Because I think here, Sarah, is where the audience of Navigating Narcissism, who is focused on healing, is like, how do you walk through this and how do you make sense of this? That's a great question. It's Well, it's been a five-year journey. Mm-hmm. I'm five years out and it's it's still happening. And it's happened in layers and pieces. I think the biggest thing for me has been therapy with a cult expert. And the first, the very first thing was understanding. And I remember it was Dan Shaw who taught me, right? Love Dan Shaw. (laughs) 
<laughs> he taught me that there's, you know, there's the, if your listeners can picture a vertical line and a horizontal line, the vertical line is where the loyalty the, to the ranks. And that when you're bought into a system like Nexium, any member will throw their own friend or partner or whatever under the bus for the approval of the rank above them. So understanding that was the first thing that 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 made sense to me and because I was so hurt, I was so betrayed and Dan was like, imagine that they're sick, they have a mental illness. Mm-hmm. That helped me. That was a big nugget of understanding that it wasn't that they're trying to betray, you know, hurt me or whatever, but they were choosing what they needed to do for their upper mm-hmm. rank, mm-hmm. right? And that there's been very various pieces around that to the point where we get to now with the vow, what you see is me slowly forgiving Lauren because I came to understand what had been done to her. And that ultimately freed any anger that I held towards her mm. because I I could see that she didn't have a chance. Because she came in when she was 18. I came in when I was 27. I was a little more formed, I think, mm-hmm, as a person. Mm-hmm. So there were things that I just distanced myself from that I just refused to do. I didn't know that I was doing that, but I just mm-hmm. didn't. Where she was giving everything that she could to this man who she thought was essentially God. Yeah. You know, and so mm-hmm. part of me also has, you know, because I was in that system and could see how, I mean, I thought I was doing good. So I know that they thought they were doing good. They didn't, they weren't, Lauren didn't do those things to hurt me. She really did think that she was trying to help me. Hmm. And I understand how she justified it for herself and and what she was going for. And I, I have empathy for that. I don't take that personally. I was a collateral damage to her abuse. No pun intended. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I'm still kind of reconciling Nancy because I haven't had that contact with her. I did, one thing that's not shown in the vow is that Lauren sent me a letter. Oh, she did. Our, yeah, through our lawyers that apologized deeply and profusely and from the bottom of her heart. And I accepted that. And I don't have that from Nancy, but the vow season two is the closest I've, I've got. I'd like mm-hmm. to go see her and and hear it from her. And And I don't know, my parents have always taught me like, that you heal ruptures. And that's ultimately been the hardest part of the last five years is that I couldn't have closure with anybody. No. A, I was being shunned and then there was legal stuff and I wasn't allowed to talk to them. And so I was like processing in my dreams and in my writing and writing mm-hmm. about it and journaling and poetry and all of my dreams. And I still have, I probably the dream, person I dream about the most is actually Nikki. And it's a reoccurring dream where I see her and we're hugging and we're laughing about how we used to be in a cult. And... <laughs> And in the dream, I tell her, my God, Nikki, I'm, I'm going to cry. I've dreamed about this so many times. And now it's finally, there was finally like you're awake and we laugh and we, and then I wake up and it's a dream again, but it's so real every time. And I just, like, I can see the pain. Like, that's the hardest thing for me right now. Like Nancy and Lauren, but like, I brought in Nikki, you know, I brought her in and then she, she moved there and she was with him and she's ruined her life. And like... I won't stop doing this until everybody's awake. Wow. If you feel comfortable and mm-hmm. don't if you don't. Because I did I sat with that and I and I when I recognized you did bring Nikki in and she remains a loyal listener. You're right, she has she's ruined her life. How did you cope with that recognition that you brought Nikki into this space? Well, there's been a lot of therapy about that too. Yeah. Um because as you know, the tendency of Nexium is to is to beat oneself up Correct. for that. And so I did that for a while. And now I had to recognize that like I brought her to something that was good. And then she made choices that I didn't make. And I, mm-hmm. I can't be responsible for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I know that intellectually. You know that. So yes, no. I, 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 I am sure you've, you've talked to I me. Mean, Dan Shaw to me is actually one of the most, he's one of the foremost voices in this mm-hmm. space. I, I respect his writing and mm-hmm. his intellect in this. It's, it's unparalleled. But when we look at Dan's work, we look at other work in the area, in, in this stuff, I don't know if anyone ever talked to you about moral injury. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of what this yes. is, this concept that the, Leaning into this idea, I did did something bad, and I'm aware I did something bad, and I did something bad in the midst of what I thought was going to be good or in the midst Mm. of doing a job. For example, a soldier who kills someone in battle, it was in the name of the war, but in the way, the soldiers are are symbols of something larger, and that might have just been an innocent kid that was getting shot, and those soldiers deal not just post-traumatic stress, but also moral injury, which is separate. And And we actually don't even have treatment protocols 
falls or anything from more right. injury. It's that sort of unique space. And I wondered about that, people who were recruiting people in and then recognized what they had brought them into. Mm-hmm. And like many people left, did their classes and left. Mm-hmm. But the ones who were who stayed on, like like Nikki, I, I thank you for sharing that yeah. because I couldn't, that, I mean, I, I can't imagine <laughs> how much of the last five years. It's a deep pain, that, I, yeah, that moral injury. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I actually learned that from Yanya Lalich. Lalich's book. Oh, yeah. okay. So she, mm-hmm. her, her book was a big part of my, mm-hmm. of my healing and mm-hmm. reconciling that. Nippy and I both. Our moral injuries were different because he yeah. wasn't a recruiter. His, mm-hmm. his was different. But it's, it's it's such a tricky thing because so much of what we learned in terms of like the ethical breach yeah. as well is like you clean up your mess. So I'm still trying to clean up my mess mm-hmm. and also trying to recognize there's some things that I can't control. And another person told me as I was leaving, you're gonna if you're leaving in this way, you're also gonna be stepping over bodies. Yes. And you can't bring everyone with you. And no. I brought a lot of people with me, but I left some people behind. And that's just yeah. it's just hard. I don't know I don't know how to reconcile that. You may not reconcile mm-hmm. it. And that becomes sort of an existential wound. Mm-hmm. And in some ways holding space for the idea that you may not reconcile it actually becomes the healing. Mm. And much as you had a scar on your body once that wouldn't heal well, this becomes one of those psychological scars that doesn't heal well. It mm-hmm. doesn't. And, you know, then that becomes also a a profound, you know, a profound part of this process and that you mm-hmm. can actually engage in the self-compassion of, okay, I can't reconcile this Ugh. and I can still move forward. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. It's, it's, a, it's a relief uh, to hear that. And I think also I need to because I feel like the more that I try to get them out, the more that they say, how dare you? Correct. How dare you tell Correct. me what I need to do? And I'm aware of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is a radical acceptance there and that you can see them from a place of grace. I mm-hmm. I would get angry when I would watch The Loyalist. I think that The Loyalist piece of this second season is one of the more powerful and frankly unsettling elements of it because what it's showing us in real time is the willing denial that they have of other people's pain. Mm -hmm. Uh, My feeling is you have your process Mm -hmm. and you even can adhere to his teachings. I understand that. There's multiple Mm -hmm. things that can be true. You still believe that. But the unwillingness to recognize the pain of another human being, I can't ever get behind that. I know. People always say, like, is there too much of a platform for them? And I don't think so because it shows how that type of indoctrination works. And it's it's educational. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's going to watch that and go, oh, yeah, maybe Keith is misunderstood and branding Mm -hmm. is a really good way to teach people empowerment. I don't think that. I think it's, it's, and I also still, I also think that the filmmakers did a real service to all of us, showing dignity mm-hmm. in all of our journeys. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You had a very, very powerful part of the story where the individuals who were helped so significantly with Tourette's disorder, mm-hmm. a tick disorder. What's interesting is a lot of what the teachings of ESP and Nexium were, were cognitive behavioral yes. models. And we know that the strongest evidence base out there exists in the literature for Tourette's is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. So they were merely doing what was already out in the literature, yeah. but sort of packaging it as in this miracle cure kind of way. And I can understand how a person who was living with a debilitating condition then has this moment where they do some work and it gets better, more than some work. They actually do the work and it improves and their lives improve. But I think that all toxic relationships, all narcissistic relationships, and even as severe a story as the one you went through with this with this organization, with this cult, is that many things can be true at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that what makes these relationships so unique and why I think so many people are struggling with understanding them is in the midst of this abuse, this trauma, this desolation, and this dehumanization were real people, real friendships, Mm -hmm. truly good experiences, real learning. And I think the naivete is like, nope, these terrible things happen, so that all goes away. It Mm -hmm. doesn't all Mm -hmm. go away. Mm -hmm. Those things were real. It's no different than a person who is married to a malignant narcissist and says, however, I still remember that moment in the delivery room, Mm -hmm. and it was real. I remember our honeymoon. It was real. There was a moment we took a walk on a beach, and it was real. Mm -hmm. And those multiple truths that those things were real 
and this person abused you. That is the most difficult healing journey a person can go through. I couldn't agree more. As you're saying, I'm like, all these flashbacks are coming back Mm -hmm. of the good good times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mark and I don't even agree, but he's more throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of the the tech. And I'm more like, well, there's this good thing and that good thing. But I had to go, those good things, those tools that I still use are not Mm -hmm. from Keith. You know, that's CBT and that's Buddhism and that's, that's, you know, seven habits of highly effective people or whatever. Right. That's how I've come Mm -hmm. to terms with it. I didn't want to throw out 12 years of my really hard Mm -hmm. work. Mm-mm. I just couldn't do it. I'm too efficiency-oriented. <laughs> and everyone approaches this differently. Yeah. And so I can respect Mark's need to throw yeah. all of it away. Totally. And I can also respect someone saying, I need to find a balance. But what sort of the counterweight to throwing it all away that Mark did is mm-hmm. the loyalist yes. sort of still saying it is all completely true and having no empathy and right. no recognition for the experience of others. Right. So they've now really taken on the characteristics of the leader. Right. You Which is said, painful. Yes, yeah. exactly. So you said you, one thing you turned to was poetry. Mm-hmm. And I would love if you could give the listeners of this podcast in your voice an opportunity to hear a poem that you wrote. It's in your book. And if you would read it to sure. us, because it's it's really stunning. Not only were the producers of this show really profoundly affected by it, I've read it several times. And I read it again last night after <laughs> I saw the show. And so if you would read it to us, I think it would have so much more meaning sure. coming in your own voice. I'd love to. And also tribute to my mom, who brought me into her creative writing class as I was fresh out. And it was a great, I thought, just a distraction, but ended up being... The seeds of this book. And this this I wrote in that class. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, it's really beautiful. Thank so you. So thank you for sharing it with us. My pleasure. I'm aching to purge, to find the wise woman within me and to perform a ritual of exorcism, to wrestle out the wiring, to twist out the hooks of the angry cords stretching so far from Albany to keep me unwittingly engaged. I've grown to hate these people. Friends I once trusted with my life, my secrets, my dreams. They've become shadows, soulless and mean. Punishing, gossiping, lying trolls, empty shells of who they once were. And I'm out here, stranded, violently trying to assemble my life back together. I'm harvesting normalcy, safety, security, warmth, kindness, connection, owning them. Standing up and announcing proudly, this is what I want, this is who I am. I'm harvesting myself. I'm mending all the broken shards of my soul back into a whole person. And with every recovery, I'm gently reminded that I never was actually broken. I was never deficient. I was always whole and complete. I'm making the time, carving out space to extract the voice that I put aside for 12 years. I'm finding my creative outlet and time for me. Finally, I'm harvesting my joy, authentic joy, not robotic faux joy. I'm harvesting my forgotten freedom and play so I can join my son on the floor and his Lego masterpieces and get lost in a castle with monsters and thunderstorms. I will discover myself again, flushed and wrung out, hanging fresh and laundered, swaying off a clothesline in the backyard of a simple burnt red farmhouse in wild green grass against bluebird sky and sun purifying the whole scene. But especially me, I'm clean again, I know that through this process, I will have forgiven those who betrayed me, who threw me under the bus, who gaslit me and scavenged my delicate, naive mind to replace my beliefs with theirs. I will let go of the rage and just dance in the breeze with that clothesline, swaying and calm. I will be me again one day. Mama, wife, actress, yogi, smoothie junkie. I am grounded, rooted, and powerful. I will feel grateful for my journey. I will have told my story and can move on. I will live the beginning, middle, and end of those chapters of my life, my entire 30s. It's done now. The pain will leave my body to form words and educational passages for others to find their way out of their own darkness. A map for the friends I left behind, and even for those I never met. Together, we'll meld back as a whole community once again, stronger, wiser, invincible. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Thank you for reading that, for sharing that, for writing that. I think there's two things. First of all, I'm going to give you like a little free psychoanalytic bit if you want. (laughs) It's actually going to make you smile. There's a part of this where you read, I will 
Be me once again, mama, wife, actress, yogi, smoothie junkie. I am grounded, rooted. You said powerful. What did I say there? But in the book, yeah. what you wrote was peaceful. Oh, interesting. To me, that's interesting that your mind went there. Huh. Because I am wondering if you're peaceful, mm-hmm. but that this has transcended mm. into you actually finding a stronger voice in this. Because that word came right out of you. It had superseded the word on the page. Wow, that's wild. It really is wild. Because mm. every other word you said as exactly as it mm. was. But there mm. you said powerful. Mm. And that is something that, again, the process of healing mm. is finding your voice. Yes. And there's another piece here which I feel is almost like a love letter to every survivor out there. I'm harvesting myself. I'm mending all the broken shards of my soul back into a whole person. I think after these relationships, cult, family, intimate relationship, it's the loss of the whole self Mm -hmm. that a person had to pawn and shave off bits of themselves to fit into what this other person was demanding Mm -hmm. or to lose them or to feel like less of a person or to be told you're entitled, you're suppressive, Mm -hmm. you're whatever is wrong with you anytime your real self shone through. Mm And then you say here, and with every recovery, I'm gently reminded that never was I actually broken. I was never deficient. I was always whole and complete. Most survivors of these relationships, their mantra becomes, I am not enough. I am not Mm -hmm. enough. That they become diminished by these Mm -hmm. relationships. And many survivors walk around calling themselves broken or damaged or lacking. And that's the work that... You're not broken. You're here. You're in front of us. You're showing up. You're getting up in the morning. That's why I tell my clients, you got out of bed today. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a win. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in a winner day. And it's, but this language around this broken and damaged, we end up, and this is again using Dan Shaw's language, mm-hmm. we end up subjugated to them, subjugated to what they want of us. We, we live into their distorted narrative of us, and we can always remain controlled. Mm-hmm. And so you capture that beautifully. And I think if every survivor could just repeat that part <laughs> to themselves over and over again, it's actually a really important mantra that nobody's broken or deficient or less than. Thank you. And thanks for having me revisit that. I, had, I forgot about that poem, and it's uh, I'm going to take that powerful note into my the next stage of my life. It is interesting. You wrote it as peaceful mm-hmm. however many years ago you mm-hmm. wrote it. Mm-hmm. And that's an evolution for you because that's what healing is, right? right? It is a process of evolution, but it's also a process of return. Because before these experiences, as you said, you, you said it so beautifully, you called it your sort of delicate, naive mind, mm-hmm. that the sense of we often, I mean, these relationships are a loss and these experiences are a loss of innocence. Absolutely. We had a worldview, but it gets shattered. But there's a part of us that's willing to go back and actually find ourselves in this mess. It's like, you know, we're walking through like a burned out home, but we find these beautiful things and that's us. And so it was a profound journey that had really brought in, especially after after watching how it all unfolded with the other players in the story, mm-hmm. how complicated it was. We wanted Nancy and Lauren to be the we wanted to demonize them wholly. And even I, as a, as a therapist, as a person who talks about this all the time, who's been through it, I had to catch myself and say, slow your roll, Romani. Why mm-hmm. did you need to see them as all bad? And why are you struggling with seeing their real suffering? Because ultimately, this entire experience for, I'm sure, either of those individuals was they are now shattered yeah. and they're trying to make sense of this and how it could get there. The only person that's taking no accountability was the prime perpetrator. And that's uh, that's how it always goes. Right. And it's all from him. Like, no no one around him signed up for this. No. That's not... Nobody. Nobody. So, yes, I can forgive them. Yes, they still need to be held accountable in the way that the law decides. Right? Would you ever be okay with not forgiving them? Uh... Yeah, I mean, there's people I don't forgive, like Claire. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't. Have, I mean, it's, it's more, it's, it's more like I don't. <laughs> I, I want to go visit Nancy now. I want to go visit Lauren. I don't mm-hmm. feel that way with Claire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I see how she was manipulated, also. Mm-hmm. But until people can disavow Keith, I don't. It's not that. Understood. Yeah, I just don't feel that that need. <laughs> and yeah. you would also be able. I mean, if what's so challenging is this journey of forgiveness. Yeah. 
anyone mm. else, and I mean, and I'm sure that there's a whole range of experiences around forgiveness. Something I speak about, you know, very vehemently is that there's no agenda around forgiveness. If mm. someone chooses to forgive, that's their process. If yeah. someone chooses not to forgive, that's their process. Mm. Nothing is more virtuous, nothing is less virtuous. Yeah. But if the forgiveness is being made from the premise that this person's going to change, that's mm. never going to work. Mm-hmm. It's that in this case, it's to recognize perhaps that the coercion they experienced was every bit as bad, perhaps mm-hmm. even worse than others did. Oh yeah, and worse than mine. Mm-hmm. That's That's, I think, the crazy part of this whole story is that and also, I think partly why I'm able to speak about it mm-hmm. is because mm-hmm. I wasn't, my head wasn't as messed with as much. I didn't live there. I didn't go through Correct. the day to day. I uh-huh. popped in and out for trainings and uh-huh. then went back to my condo in mm-hmm. Vancouver. Yeah. And honestly, mm-hmm. what you had taken with you was what you considered to be the good parts yeah. of this to actually do the piece of it that mattered. There's a piece, and this is a little bit of a strange aside, but mm-hmm. I think it's worth mentioning. You had talked about a beloved mentor to you in this program called Barb J. Mm-hmm. Then there was another woman named Pam Kafritz. Mm-hmm. These were people who got sick really fast and declined yeah. really quickly. Yeah. And it seems like there might have been other people who did too. Yeah. Sarah, that part of the story is not lost on me. To be around this much human poison, mm-hmm. don't tell me that's not going to get a person physically ill. I actually think that there is that and actual poisoning. Wow. Which is yet to be fully expressed. There was a documentary that touched on, they did some sampling of Karen's hair and a really long hair, and mm-hmm. they found, I don't remember the name of the chemical, but it's the chemical found in rat poison, bromine? No. Um, Not arsenic. No. I, I don't remember what it's called, but mm-hmm. it's, in, it's a documentary called Lost Women of Nexium, mm-hmm. and they did some testing, wow. but it hasn't been fully investigated. First, I thought because there was like 10 or 12 women around Keith when I was in it that had yeah. different cancers. And then Pam and Barb died. Anyway, all of all of that to say nothing would surprise me. And uh-uh. yeah, it, I, I believe he was poisoning the older women to make room for the younger women. Wow. You know, because whatever was happening to people, that mm-hmm. people were getting so devastatingly ill mm-hmm. and nothing was being done. And there was a ca- the callousness. You yeah. know, I think that the callousness and then the callousness being framed as almost a toughness and endurance. It's It was diabolical. Mm-hmm. And yet in Nexium, we saw the top notes of everything we see in every toxic relationship. So, Sarah, I cannot thank you for coming in here <laughs> for what was... Uh, It wasn't easy, and I thank you for actually coming in here and being so vulnerable and trusting this process and me, frankly, and I I just, I'm I'm humbled, just put it that way. I am too. It's so much better in person. Yes, it is. I didn't know it would be like so emotional and also the bonus therapy. So no. <laughs> thank well, you. I mean, words, you know, in that way, funny way, our words slip out. I always think that there's just sort of this greater nature of yes. ours. It's often saying, could you let me out? Because I see the best of you. And I, you know, I hope you see that in yourself. And I think, I think for many people, and like I said, I do believe motherhood in many ways was your salvation. That sometimes for many of us, that how we actually loosen those bonds mm-hmm. is we wouldn't be willing to fight for ourselves, mm-hmm. but we'd be willing to lay it all on the line for our children. Mm-hmm. So I think Absolutely. it's amazing. And you're an amazing mom, oh, amazing you. person, and it's really been a joy getting to know you. Thank so, you. Thank you. You have a friend and ally and supporter in me. Somebody greatly respects your work. So I appreciate honor that to be here. so, so much. Thank you. Here are my takeaways from this conversation with Sarah. In my first takeaway... When people finally do get clarity in these relationships, it can actually activate a tremendous amount of grief. Knowing that someone is narcissistic or psychopathic or sociopathic, no matter what the relationship is, while it can help things make sense, many survivors will share that they realize that they no longer have the life or the relationship they thought that they once did. It's as though everything becomes a lie overnight. It can be painful when others suggest, hey, well, aren't you relieved you dodged a bullet? When people find out about these personalities and how they played out in this relationship, ultimately, yes, this knowledge will foster healing. But initially, not only do people not believe they dodged a bullet, they feel as though the bullet hit them in the heart. In this next takeaway, Sarah's experience of having to grieve her friendship with Lauren, which had been very important to her, required her to go through a series of steps. Once the picture became more clear to Sarah and she stepped away, a combination of distancing and disengaging, gaining some perspective, 
safety, gaining more clarity, allowing her empathy to give her a more full perspective on the situation, and then acceptance unfolded for her. The challenge for many survivors is that they may not give themselves that space and time to recoalesce. If you don't give yourself some time and distance, it is very easy for empathy to turn into enabling. Sarah found her way to forgiveness. Not everyone does, and there is no one path that is better or more righteous than the other. The danger for many survivors, especially those who are trauma-bonded, is that their empathy can pull them quickly back into wanting to rationalize and justify and forgive before having done their own healing and perspective-taking. In my next takeaway, many survivors of narcissistic relationships, especially those in which the narcissistic person's behavior resulted in a big splash zone of harm, People in cults, people in toxic family systems, people in workplaces, they may struggle with survivor guilt or moral injury. They will look back at the other person hurt by the narcissistic person, and if they feel in any way responsible for what happened, for example, that they introduced the person to the narcissistic person, they are a parent that co-parents with a narcissistic person, they hired someone into a company where there was a really vicious boss, that not only are they recovering from the harm they personally experienced, but the far more painful experience of feeling responsible for the pain that others underwent. To push through this can often be a complex therapeutic process involving trauma therapy, grief work, and self-compassion. And for many survivors, echoes of this grief, guilt, and moral injury will persist for a lifetime. In our next takeaway, Sarah's pursuits such as creative writing and poetry are a reminder of how important creativity can be as a part of healing from these relationships and situations. Creativity offers an opportunity to express feelings in a different way, and that can even be shared with others to humanize these struggles and let others know that they are not alone. Whatever the medium, writing, painting, music, cooking, drawing, sculpture. It's something that can bring a greater depth and mindfulness to healing. And in our last takeaway, Sarah found many elements of what she learned in Nexium to be useful, that the teachings she resonated with, that she taught to others, were and are useful to her. But she shared a conversation that she had with someone else who had been in Nexium, who said he eschewed all of it. Grief is very personal. Some people want to fully distance, while others may want to hold on to the parts that were good or helpful. Again, there are no right paths. Ideally, there are authentic ones. Some folks sometimes feel a bit of shame if they pull lessons or acknowledge they gleaned something from the experience. It feels easier to just say it was all bad. But her story and the different stories of others teach us that there is no single path forward. And some people find that there were some things they learned that they don't want to let go of. The key is to be able to retain a kinder and gentler way of being with yourself after experiencing invalidation and manipulation and the subsequent self-blame and confusion. A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Fallon Jethro, Ellen Rakuten, and Dr. Romani Devasala. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara Della Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And finally, thank you to our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donahue and Calvin Bailiff. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, 
host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.